0: So we're in Mark chapter 5 this morning, the fifth chapter of Mark. If you have your Bibles, you might turn there. Last time I preached from Mark, I preached from Mark chapter 4, that story of Jesus calming the storm. Jesus and those closest to him were on a boat in the Sea of Galilee, a storm threatened to send them all to their death. And Jesus said to the storm, Hush, be still, and the sea became perfectly calm. Many things to be learned in that portion of Scripture in Mark chapter 4, 35 through 41. However, the primary truth that is found in that portion of Scripture is that those on the boat that night came face to face with God himself, the King of kings and the Lord of lords, who is creator and sustainer and controller of all things on this earth, Even the storm in that particular historical event. He controls it all even today. And those with him in the boat stood in awe of him. It says they had fear. And that word is a fear that combines afraid and reverence. Because they were in the presence of God. It should be a feeling that is very much common to us. As we look to Jesus Christ. And we say, oh, we stand in awe. Many of you have heard me say before that I lack creativity. When uh, Pastor John says, hey, would you preach on a Sunday? I look at Genesis to Revelation, I think to myself, there is so much, and I need it all. And I go from place to place, and I find myself discouraged, and then I think, well, where was I last? And it was Mark chapter 4, and so I'll just go to Mark chapter 5. That's how creative I am. It is eight months apart, but I think you know the story of Mark 4, so we'll just move in to Mark 5. It is New Year's Eve. It is the last day of 2023. For some of you, it's just another day. It doesn't really mean anything. For others, it's a day of reflection and looking back at the old and looking forward to the new. Well, as you can imagine, in chapter 5, there is something that is old and that becomes new. There is an old man described in Mark 5, who becomes a new man, the old and the new. So this morning we'll look at this man's life. I would ask, does that sound familiar to you, the old and the new? See, if you proclaim yourself to be a follower of the Lord Jesus Christ, you have an old life and a new life. And they should be drastically different. This man's old life is drastically different from his new life. That should be common to those who were followers of Jesus Christ. Not as apparent necessarily as what we'll see in this text, but spiritually just as dramatic, or at least it should be. So we'll look at the old and the new this morning, the old man. We'll look at the old man who meets Jesus, the old man who is made new, and then the old man who receives instructions as a new man. I don't want you to be distracted because the story is as interesting and unique as any story, any narrative in all of Scripture. I don't want you to be distracted by that and miss this, that the key person in the text is Jesus Christ the Lord. The the key understanding, the, the big picture point here is that Jesus is God. He is deity. Just like on the storm, there are many interesting facts. The most important fact that Jesus is God. And that's what we'll see here. We'll see Jesus as God changing a man's life. So let's look together at Mark chapter 5. Let me read the first few verses. They came to the other side of the sea into to the country of the Gerasenes. When he got out of the boat, immediately a man from the tombs with an unclean spirit met him. And he had his dwelling among the tombs, and no one was able to bind him anymore, even with the chain, because he had been bound with shackles and chains, and chains had been torn apart by him, the shackles broken into pieces. No one was strong enough to subdue him. Constantly, night and day, he was screaming among the tombs and in the mountains and gnashing himself with stones. So we see the old man. After the calm of the storm... Jesus and his disciples who were on the west shore of Galilee when they set sail are now on the east side of the Sea of Galilee. It's a Gentile region, so it's a region uh, not primarily lived in by Jewish people, but by Gentiles. It says, when Jesus got out of the boat, immediately a man from the tombs with an unclean or an evil spirit met him. Immediately means what you think, it means at once. So Jesus steps onto the, onto the land from the sea, and at once he is met by this one with an unclean or evil spirit. It says in verse 6 that seeing Jesus from a distance, from afar, he knew who he was. Look at verse 6. Seeing Jesus from distance, he ran up and bowed before him. So I don't know when this man became aware that Jesus was there. It's possible... That since he lived among the tombs, that as this storm was ravaging the Sea of Galilee, this particular geography of this land is flat, but it goes up a hillside, and the storms would come over the hills of the Gerasenes and down onto the Sea of Galilee and create great storms. And so this man would have been used to the great storms on the Sea of Galilee, but he was not used to this. Hush be still, and the mega storm became mega silent. That in an instant, a storm went from raging gone. And this man must have looked and thought to himself, what is occurring? The demons within may have said, God is present. We don't know. But we know this, that he was running down that mountain. At some point he saw him and knew who he was. Mark gives us great detail. He wants us to see what is occurring. Jesus steps from the boat and boom, at once he is met. Not by the man dwelt by the demons hiding behind a, a rock yelling at him. But no, a face-to-face encounter. The man who was unclean, impure, not right, demon-possessed, right up to Jesus as he steps off the boat. Mark describes this man for us. He said he's a man with an unclean spirit. Your translation may say evil spirit. He loved, lived among the tombs where the dead and the dying are. He had supernatural strength. Shackles and chains could not subdue him. He would go about screaming, which is shrieking and crying out, day and night, gnashing himself, cutting himself with stones. They would bind him to try to stop his behavior, literally meaning tie him together, and yet he would tear apart whatever was used to bind him. I'd ask you not to downplay the demon possession. We live in suburban Vacaville, California, and it would be easy to just dismiss demon possession and say, well, there are a lot of mental health and drug issues in the world. Who knows what was happening with this man? Please don't set aside what God himself calls in his living word, demon possession in the 18th verse of this chapter. I can say, yes, in my career field, I met people with supernatural strength who would run around naked. They would self-inflict. Some of them were from drug use. Some were for bedding battling mental illness and some were demon-possessed. What is being described here is demon possession. It's interesting, a reading of this text in Africa or India or Haiti, a Christian would just nod and go on with the story. But here in in suburban, comfortable America, sometimes we pause and we go, I wonder what was really going on with the man, even though the Scripture tells us. For a myriad of reasons, that we don't have time to delve into, demon possession is more persuasive in some places on the planet than others. Although that could change here. Very common in places that are Gentile idol-worshipping, God-rejecting pieces of geography. I was part of a church planning ministry once in Rwanda, East Africa. The mud brick church building wasn't constructed yet. And while we were there, we spent three days walking up paths into villages, sitting in people's homes, preaching the gospel and inviting them for that Sunday's church service. It would be the first church service for a new church in an open field in front of where the church was going to be built. And we preached the gospel there. We sang worship there. And afterwards, we fellowship there. And a woman walked up, and she didn't want to speak with the man who preached about Jesus. She wanted to speak to the leader of our group. Because in her world, the leader was the one with the power. And she walked up to my friend Gary and she said to him, Would you breathe into my mouth? And we thought we missed the translation. We asked the translator, what is she saying? She wants you, Gary, to breathe into her mouth. We said, why? So that your spirit would join the other spirits that live within me. And we learned it was commonly known in that place that she had many demons living within her, and they would manifest themselves in the presence of others. Unusual for us. Pastor John MacArthur describes three times in his ministry talking to those who were demon-possessed. There are those even in our assembly this morning that have been to India on mission trips. And they've seen the unexplainable demon possession of those who in villages as Christians would say, oh, that person's been possessed for years. MacArthur says, interestingly enough, and by no surprise, there's only one hope for that person. It's the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. It's not somehow us thinking that we and ourselves have the power to demand one to leave. But we have the great joy of preaching the gospel to that one. And watching God do his work in his or her life. What a miserable existence. Crying day and night. So that would be living in a state of exhaustion. People tying you up. Cutting yourself. Which would lead to filthy infections. Luke adds he was naked for a long time. So at night he would be cold. In the heat of the day he would be sunburned and dry. Matthew adds he was so violent that no one could pass by him. So no companions. He was demon-possessed, minus clothes, minus friends, minus companions, dehumanized, marginalized, demoralized, hopeless, alienated from all, and alienated from God. This is who this man was. And you might think to yourself, I'm so thankful that wasn't me. But can I suggest that we have much more in common with this man than we would ever like to admit? Maybe... No one here was ever demon-possessed, but if you have a Bible and you go to Ephesians chapter 2, look what it says. Here's what it says in Ephesians chapter 2. And you were dead in your trespasses and sins in which you formerly walked according to the course of this world, according to the prince of the power of the air, of the spirit that is now working in the sons of disobedience among men who were all too formerly lived in the lust of the flesh, indulging in the desires of the flesh. And of the mind, and were by nature children of wrath, even as the rest. But God, being rich in mercy because of his great love with which he loved us. So, we have much more in common with this man than we would like to ever admit. When you met Jesus and the mercy of God because of his great love came upon you, your old man was rescued from what? From being dead to God. By living in trespasses and sin. from following the course of this world from being led by the devil, from being a son of disobedience, from lusting for all that you wanted, what you wanted, and when you wanted, when you couldn't get it, you lusted about it in your mind. Simply a child of wrath, the Scripture says. That's a pretty unflattering picture. By the way, when he says we are dead in our sins, dead is always dead. It's the same. If you see a video of, what is sometimes called the walking dead in a big city like San Francisco, half naked, drug addicted, pushing a shopping cart. They're dead in their sins. Before Christ, we were dead in our sin. Dead is dead. I mean, note this. You don't have to teach a child to lie, but rather to tell the truth. You don't have to teach a child not to be angry, but rather to be kind. You don't have to teach a child not to steal, but to appreciate that which they have. So we're not drastically different, not demon-possessed, but oh, so separated from God. It's possible that in that place, dead to sin, living in trespasses, that you're also so broken, you were like the woman in Mark 5, who it says was hemorrhaging for 12 years, and she said, if I just touch his garment, I will get well. Imagine how, you might have been that one. You might have been dead in your sin, but you weren't raging. You were were just so needy at the moment that His grace touched you. You thought, if I could just touch His garment. You might have been like the woman in Mark chapter 7 who says, even the dogs get your crumbs. You were everything of Ephesians chapter 2. But you might remember the moment when you were so broken and His grace came upon you and He enabled you. To have faith and say, if I could just get a crumb, I know it would change my life. And you sit here today as someone who has met Jesus Christ. Isn't that amazing? What a gift. That's our second point. Jesus meets this old man. Let's look at verse 6. Seeing Jesus from a distance, he ran up and bowed before him. And shouting with a loud voice, he said, What business do we have with each other, Jesus, Son of the Most High God? I implore you by God, do not torment me. For he had been saying to him, Come out of the man, you unclean spirit. And he was asking him, What is your name? And he said to him, My name is Legion, for we are many. And he began to implore him earnestly not to send them out of the country. Now there was a large herd of swine feeding nearby on the mountainside. The demons implored him, saying, Send us into the swine so that we may enter them. Jesus gave them permission, and coming out, the unclean spirits entered into the swine, and the herd rushed down the steep bank into the sea, about 2,000 of them. And they were drowned in the sea. So this man, this demon-possessed man, greeted Jesus by bowing before him. The Greek word to bow is to fall prostrate. In some translations, it says he fell to his knees. Can you imagine the disciples getting out of the boat and seeing a naked man screaming, screeching and crying, running towards Jesus, and then falling on his face before him. Not an act of worship at this time, but clearly an act of respect for who Jesus Christ was. He fell to his knees. Paul says in Philippians 1 that every knee shall bow in the heaven and on the earth. And every tongue shall confess Jesus Christ to the glory of God, the Father, bowing before him and shouting, What business do we have with each other? What have you to do with me, Son of the Most High? Interesting, this man had correct theology. He was calling him God. So the demons within this man, the spokesman for those demons spoke out and called him God. James in 2.19 of of his writings that even the demons believe. So he got the theology correct. What do we have to do with each other, son of the Most High? It's interesting, he knows the answer to the question that the disciples on the boat asked. They it says in verse 41, they became very much afraid and said to one another, who is this? Who is this that even can calm the storm? There was no doubt in the demons possessed man's mind that this was God isn't that amazing in Matthew 8 29 a parallel passage to this it says have you come to torment us before the time have you come to torment us before the time theology was so correct that this group of demons living within this man knew there was a time when Jesus would deal with them and he goes why are you here now This is the time? Then the most interesting thing happens. He says to him, I implore you, in verse 7, I implore you, which is to take an oath, to swear or bind under God. The demon says to God, take an oath to God not to torment me. So Jesus comes on shore, the the one runs to him, falls prostrate and says, why are you here? What do you have to do with me? What does God have to do with the demon? Is this the time? And then mid-sentence he says, wait a second, I implore you, I ask you to make an oath. What I'm doing to this man, don't do it to me. And torment is a word that means to torture it means to punch and to kick. It's to strike and someone falls and kick them. And they stand up and you strike them, they fall again, you kick That's torture. He says, don't do this to me. Jesus asked what his name is in verse 8 and 9. He says to Jesus, my name is Legion, for there are many. So this poor man was possessed by many demons. A legion of Roman soldiers, somewhere between 4,500 and 6,000 soldiers. We see in the context that 2,000 pigs are affected, so there's at least... 2,000 demons in this man. Next, the legion implores Jesus. Again, do not send us out of the country. First he says, I implore you not to torment me. And now he implores, he uses the word implore again. And in this context, it's begging. Don't send us out of the country. Why? Most likely because they had been very successful in this piece of geography in this particular piece of the country. Right? This was Gentile land. There are different idols and religious thought. Don't send us away. Keep us right here so we can continue, continue doing the damage that we have done in the past. Remember in Matthew chapter 12 where the unclean spirit came out of a person and then it passed through the waterless place uh, to find seeking rest but didn't find any. And when he comes back, it's not one but it's seven. Seven. Right, the, the demons were like, cast us away, but just don't put us out of this land. Don't torture us. Keep us here, whatever you do with us, because they were already planning what they were going to destroy next. That's how the enemy works. Luke tells us, also on the mind of the demon-possessed man, was not wanting to be caught, tossed into the abyss. Mark 5.10 uh, or Luke 8.31. And they begged him, do not... Depart, do not command us to be departed into the abyss. The abyss is, in the Jewish conception, the home of the dead and evil spirits, a bottomless pit. We can't be sure why exactly, but it's clear that they are asking Jesus not to cast them out of the land and into some place where they can have no authority again, because they say, cast this into the pigs. Verse 13, Jesus gave permission and coming out, the unclean spirits entered the swine and the herd rushed down the steep bank into the sea. About 2,000 of them were drowned in the sea. I find it interesting and I paused here for a bit on the question of the demons, first asking, why do you have anything to do with me? And then immediately deferring to what they wanted. Right, they fell on their face acknowledging who Jesus was and then immediately say, This is what I want. Sinclair Ferguson says this Men often hold on to the bondage of evil rather than yield to the pain of transformation by Christ and the power of his grace. Men often hold on to the bondage and evil rather than yield to the pain of transformation by Christ. Power in grace. Isn't that interesting? Where does that show itself? How does that manifest? Manifest this way. Someone says, I'm so sick with bitterness. Lord, help me. I think I'll hold on to this grudge just a little longer. Right? There's a duplicity, a double mindedness, James says, which makes a man unstable in all his ways, that's found in this demon. I bow before you, I fall on my face before you, and I say, What do you have to do with me? You're God, I'm a demon. But since you're here, do this for me. A duplicity. And in Christians, double-mindedness makes us unstable. And that's what Sinclair Ferguson is saying. Sometimes we want to hold on. Oh, Lord, save the soul of this one, please. And then we see that one commit a sinful act and we go, forget it. Sitting in front of the computer screen, we say, oh, Lord, free me from the bondage of this sin. Oh, I think I'll sit a little longer. I'll neglect my responsibility and my duty to my family a little longer. Oh, Lord, help free me from the dependence on alcohol or drugs. Oh, maybe just one more day, one more drink, one more edible. Oh, Lord, let me be a faithful employee. Let me serve you like no other at my place of work. Eh, nobody knows. My boss can't see how lazy I'm going to be. Tomorrow I will begin that. Oh, Lord, let me pray for those in authority over me. You place them there with words that are bathed in grace. Just after I finish condemning the elected and my boss to my friends after church. See, there's this duplicity. Where we say, oh, I bow before you, yeah, but. That's what this demon That's what Sinclair Ferguson says. Men hold on to their bondage and evil rather than yield to the transformation by Christ's power. See, the yielding to the transformation of Christ by his power and his grace gives us such great joy and freedom and peace. Pastor John would say, what about you? Is there a duplicity in your life? The old man, demon-possessed Man crying day and night, living in a state of exhaustion, people tying him up, cutting himself, filthy infections, is made new by Jesus Christ. Look at verse 14. The herdsmen ran away and reported to the city and the country. The people came to see what what had happened. They came to Jesus. I observed the man who had been demon-possessed, sitting down, clothed and in right mind, the very man who had the legion, and they became frightened. Those who had seen it described to them how it happened, and to the, and to the demon-possessed man, and all about the swine, and they began to implore him to leave their region. The old man is made new. Do you remember when you were made new? Do you remember when you were made new? When you were new in Christ, when the garbage of your life was sent to the bottom of the ocean, so to speak, in this wine? Do you preach the gospel to yourself daily? Do you rehearse the testimony of what he did and how he changed you daily? It's very helpful to do so. It's very helpful to remember who you were and thank him for who you are. The old man made new, no longer naked, but clothed, no longer running among the tombs, screeching and crying, but sitting, clothed and of right mind. People came from the town to gaze upon him. It says they came and they observed, which is gaze with purpose to analyze. They came and they looked at Jesus and they looked at the man and they were trying to determine, make sense of what happened. What they observed was a man of right mind. Remember, no longer naked, no longer cutting himself, no longer screaming, no longer screeching, no longer being tied up, but actually sitting of right mind. It means to be of sound mind, to be temperate, sober-minded, a person with self-control. For the believer it reflects what God defines as a true moderation in our life. It comes from two words in the original language. It says this, what regulates life? So this man met Jesus, Jesus' freedom from demon possession, and he was now a God-controlled man of the right mind whose life was regulated by his relationship with God. I want that. I want that. I want to be a man who is a God-controlled man of the right mind whose life is regulated by my relationship with God. What about you? Is that, is that the desire? To regulate means to control something, the rate and speed of a process so something would operate correctly, right? So we understand. So so whatever it is, it's correctly operating because it's regulated. And this man now is regulated by God. And we could ask ourselves, what, what regulates us? What is the regulator of your life? If it isn't this, we'll never be of right mind. This is the regulator of life. If you read Proverbs today, is there a lot in there for the ladies? And then the men, we can read it and say... So much of that I'd like to be like. There's a place in Proverbs thirty-one nine. the second half says, Defend the rights of the afflicted and the needy. Defend the rights of the afflicted and the needy. In this community, this would have been an afflicted and needy man. Isn't that interesting? When I was thinking about my regulator, the living word of God, Sometime last week, I said, well, what is the proverb of the day on the day that I will share these words? Oh, Proverbs 31. And I read it, and I thought, oh, isn't it amazing that I'm called to defend those who are afflicted and needy? This man was so afflicted and so needy. And how often would I drive by one of those people and see them walking down the street, screaming to the various voices coming into their mind, Would my first thought be, oh, Lord, I pray for that one. Is there a way I could defend that one? Or would I say, I'm so glad they're on someone else's block and not mine. This is the regulator of life. It says that this man was now regulated in Christ, of right mind. There's no clearer or more simple picture of regeneration than to say he was wrong and now he is right. He was wrong in his view of God, and now he is right in his view of God. I want to say there is so much to consider here. Why the swine? Why did Jesus allow this? By the way, this couldn't have happened without Jesus' permission, right? He's in control of all things. Why did they ask him to leave? But, just one Sunday, so we'll continue. Uh, The old man received instruction. What we do know when we get to this point is there's so much to consider, but the key, the key to walk away with, to cling to, is that Jesus Christ is seen again as God, as the divine Lord and controller of everything. And if he can control what's happening in this man's life at this particular time, oh, how he can control every second of every day in your life and mine. Right? This is a story about Jesus. And it's easy to get distracted on the other. But he was given instruction. Very simply, I call it follow and speak. Follow and speak. By application, as you consider the amazing historical event recorded here in this narrative, when we get to the end, the man wants to be with Jesus. And Jesus says, it's okay, you want to follow me, but I've got a job for you. Verse 18, as he's getting into the boat, the man who had demon-possessed, was imploring him that he might accompany him. He's, a, he's using the word imploring again. He's begging again. He wants to be with Jesus. I ask myself this question, do I start the day begging Jesus, imploring Jesus, I just want to be with you today? I know I'm indwelt by the Spirit. I know he's present everywhere at all times. But is the position of my heart like this man? Jesus, let me accompany you. Jesus, let me accompany you today. Am I just a bag of dry bones who comes to church on Sunday, Shake some hands? How are you? Great. If it's any better than he be to me, you too. See you next week, and then I go living like everybody else. I want to be like this man. Let me accompany you, Jesus. Jesus knew his heart. And he said, "No, stay," and he gave him instruction. He did not let him. But he said, go home to your people and report to them what great things the Lord has done for you and how he had mercy on you. And he went away and began to proclaim in Decapolis what great things Jesus had done for him. Everyone was amazed. He followed Jesus. Jesus said, follow me here. Speak about me. Tell people what great things Jesus has done. How he showed you mercy. The obedience of this man resulted in a word... It says, they were amazed, amazement, great conviction for me set in about this moment in this text. I asked myself, how often have I spoken the name of Jesus and watched people amazed at his goodness? I started to make a list of times that I sat in the presence of others and I thought about speaking Jesus and I did not. But then the Lord overwhelmed me with joy as I started to write down the names of those that I was able to sit in their presence and talk about the goodness and what he has done for my family, how he showered us with mercy. One of the greatest joys of life is to tell someone how God has shown mercy to you and to watch their reaction, either interested or rejecting. It's still a great blessing to share the truth. Can you imagine this man walking through his front door of his home and saying, "Mom and dad, it's me. Jesus has freed me. I'm of right mind." Can you imagine your son or your daughter walking through your front door? Your friend? Your coworker? Your parent? And saying, "I'm free." I'm free from the bondage of sin and I'm born again. Jesus is my Lord and Savior. There's a song that has a lyric that says, don't tell me he can't do it. Whenever I listen to that, I think of people in my life that I'm praying for and I just hear clearly, don't don't tell me that he can't do it in their lives. If you're outside of faith this morning, you have heard a story of hope, a demon-possessed man who was born again Tremendous good news. The gospel is good news. What great news for this man. I would encourage you to be like this man and implore Jesus to free you from the bondage of your sin. That you would just be a person of prayer. You'd say, I don't understand it, but I, I, I want to be free. And you would pray. And guess what? You're surrounded by people that know you and love you and would love to talk to you about Jesus. Whether this is your first Sunday, you've been coming for 10 years. And guess what? You're also surrounded people who don't know you, but they love you because Jesus said, "Love your neighbor," and you're their neighbor, and they would be happy to sit down. I would be happy to sit down with you. I would say, call Pastor John. (laughs) Just pop in on him. I mean, find someone that you might sit with to tell you about Jesus. And to my Christian brothers and sisters, we close. I would say, follow and speak. Say to him, Lord, I want to follow and speak. I want to talk about your boundless love and your mercy and your goodness to me and my family. And wait to watch the amazement of some. Wouldn't that be amazing? I was thinking, I wish I could give testimony and had the time to talk about the wayward mom who was... Drawn to faith through watching Katie and Annie's life. And Annie was there praying over her at her baptismal on a Saturday night at a local church. I wish I could walk up the man who used to come sit in my living room and rub his work shoes into my carpet so they would be, the carpet would be black at midnight because he was a methamphetamine addict. And the Lord Jesus saved his life. I had a father of five and now he has a relationship with his kids again. He was so bad that I, hand, I couldn't do it anymore, and I handed him off to another man. And that man stayed with him for a while, handed him off to a third man. I wish I could tell you the amazement when he finally, a man grown up in the home of a pastor, when he finally said, oh, I'm a child of God. And his life changed dramatically. I wish I had time to talk about my friend of 40 years. It's a good man who sought many spiritual things. And then Jesus broke through and changed his life. And I was able to watch him baptized. Don't tell me he can't do it. He can. And he does. And you are the evidence of such. And called to be those who follow and speak. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we bow before you in awe of your power and your strength in awe of the fact that you do control all things, even those that are demon-possessed. We thank you for your great mercy and your great love, which freed us from the bondage of sin and allowed us to be your children. Help us to follow you and speak of you, and wait to watch those who would be amazed. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.